0: Well, good morning, everybody. How's your Monday? Okay, all right. How was your weekend? Anybody eat stuffing? It's my favorite. Hey guys, uh, this morning I'm going to start with a story. Are you ready for a story this morning? Okay. I want to begin this morning with a story about a football. This football. Okay. My dad got this football, along with a bunch of other sports equipment, in a box that he bought at an auction. The way the story goes in my family is that sometime later, one of my older brothers, when he was just a little boy, was rummaging through the box and found the football, and he noticed something strange about it. It had writing all over it, and he took it to my dad, and he said, Dad, there's writing all over this football, and dad said, let me see that for a minute. I can imagine what happened next in my mind's eye. Dad's eyes getting big as he read what was written on the football. That wasn't a bunch of scribbles, these were names. They were written on the football, not just any names, they were household names, at least in our household. And they were names that would have evoked reverence and awe in a guy who grew up in Wisconsin, a lifelong diehard fan of the Green Bay Packers. I know, <laughs> I know not everyone in the room is a Packer fan and that's all right. I think you'll appreciate the rest of my story anyhow. Um, actually, Sarah, we, we might need a little help for this part. All right, and um, we're gonna get in the, the mood here for a second. Um, in fact, So, as dad held the football in his hands, and he read the names on the football, he came to realize that this was an autographed football of the entire 1967 Green Bay Packers team, a team that included 10 would-be Hall of Famers. You should know that this wasn't just any team. In 1967, the Packers were the defending NFL champions. Uh, That year, they would go on to win their third straight NFL title and go on to play in Super Bowl II, defeating the Oakland Raiders to become world champions for the second straight year. More than that, the team got to the Super Bowl by winning one of the most famous games ever played in the NFL, a game whose story lives on in the folklore of my family and in the families of many kids since me who grew up in Wisconsin, and they called that game the Ice Bowl. The Ice Bowl. Now, Emma, I'm gonna need a little more help here from you for this next part. The Ice Bowl. The Green Bay Packers hosted the 1967 NFL championship game on December 31st. The temperature at kickoff, minus 13 degrees. Wind chill, minus 27. Oddly enough, the 1967 was the year that Lambeau Field was first outfitted with heated playing surface, heat coils under the turf. But the grounds crew made one fateful decision that season. In the days leading up to that New Year's Eve game, seeing cold weather in the forecast, they covered the field, assuming that it would help insulate it. But in the hours leading up to kickoff, as the crew uncovered the field, it was so cold, that the damp warm air underneath the cover flash froze, creating a rock hard, slippery surface. The NFL commissioner made the decision to play the game anyway. Some would say that the Packers opponent that day, the warm weather Dallas Cowboys, were at a disadvantage, but no team would have been prepared to play on that field. And as the game clock ticked down, it came down to the final play. Down three points with 16 seconds to go in the fourth quarter, the Packers had the ball near the goal line just two feet from a touchdown. The play call was gutsy, a quarterback sneak. MVP Bart Starr took the snap and leaped into the end zone sealing a victory for the Green Bay Packers. (laughs) And as dad held the ball in his hands that day it dawned on him that what he was holding in his hands was a treasure, a treasure. All this time, it had been, it had been in a box in the basement with old baseball gloves and, and a tennis racket and a basketball, everyday stuff that's easy to take for granted. He was unaware of its true value. And you guys, this story reminds me <laughs> Um, that Jesus has given us a gift, that Jesus has given us a treasure that sometimes we take for granted, that sometimes we undervalue and we are unaware maybe of its true worth. And and that gift is the Lord's prayer. He's given us the Lord's prayer as a gift. I've spent a good portion of my life sort of indifferent about the Lord's prayer. Like, Like dad's football, I've been unaware of its true value. Looking back, much of my life as a Jesus follower was, my prayer life was shallow, I would say. My prayers were talking to God about problems, asking God for help, saying thank you for his blessings and and saying I'm sorry for my sins. That isn't bad, he wants that. He wants us to come to him with, with every need and every thought. He wants to be our help in times of trouble. He wants us to recognize our sin. And repent. In fact, this is the very work of the Holy Spirit in us. But for me, my prayer life was, was shallow. It was one dimensional. It was reactionary, really. But it's Jesus here in Matthew 6, uh, where, we, where he gives us the Lord's Prayer, um, and he says, This is how you should pray. It's, more, it's less about being reactive to our circumstances and more about being proactive, I think. Jesus demonstrates here um, a heart posture of, of discipline. He wants us to pray this prayer daily so that we, uh, would, it would soak into our, our, every fiber of our being, that it, would, that it would pulsate through our blood and our synapses. You know, he expects that this prayer will, um, as we make it a daily practice, shape our hearts and shape our minds and shape our very lives. This prayer is meant to move us and to motivate us to join Jesus in his mission and in his movement in the world. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of God is not just about him moving and acting on our behalf, but we are participants. And we are to be inspired to act on the kingdom's behalf. So how brilliant, how compassionate that Jesus would give um, us a gift of this value. A prayer that captures the very essence of the kingdom movement in the world. Let's not miss that. Let's not treat it like some old football in a box in the basement. We began our look at the Lord's Prayer uh, last week as Dayton led us through the first half of it. By the way, if you missed that, um, go and listen to it on on our podcast. If you don't know how to find our podcast, you can search Chapel on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, Uh, Dayton did an an awesome job um, introducing what this is, what this Lord's Prayer is. He pointed out that the ordering and the placement of, of the words, the structure of the prayer, it was very intentional. We see the word your, for instance, comes before the word us. The whole first stanza is filled with the word your and the second is filled with the word us. And only after acknowledging and praying for his name and his kingdom and his will can we then turn our attention to the second half of the prayer. Only after grounding ourselves in his presence, acknowledging our relationship with him, recognizing his holiness, surrendering to his will, Are we meant to bring, then, our requests, our needs to him? Before I began working at Northwestern, I worked with a pastor, and he would always say this. He would say, let's seek his face before we seek his hand. Let's seek God's face before we seek his hand. And we see that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? First, your Name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. That's that's what seeking his face is all about. That's what that looks like. And then we seek his hand. So the first word of this second stanza is give, okay? So give. It's in his compassion. God knows that we will be in need in this world, and he wants to provide for us. Remember, his kingdom is, is already here, and it's not yet here in completeness. His kingdom has come, and yet we very still very much still experience the kingdom of this world. His kingdom has not yet permeated every corner of, of our hearts. His kingdom has not yet permeated every corner of this world. And so, simply put, we need. We need. And Jesus invites us to ask because his heart is compassionate and he loves us. So give and then give us, give us. Notice not me, give us. There's a very communal aspect to this prayer and that's intentional, right? It importantly signals to us the value of of Christian community, that our life with God is meant to be lived alongside and intertwined with and supported by one another. But what does it look like to seek his hand? We know every word in this prayer is intentional. So what does Jesus include in his teaching? What are the most important things that we need? What are the most important things we should ask for if our hearts are aligned to the will of God? Remember, we spent the time first aligning our hearts to his. So in light of that, what are the most important things that we should ask for? Well, he gives us this. First, he says, give us today the food we need. First, Jesus says, pray for food Other translations, right, say bread or not just food, but the food we need today, our daily bread. So this is a basic provision of what's needed for sustenance, for life, for vitality. Here we're made aware of the importance of our dependence on God for what we need and our dependence on God for what we need today. This dependence is meant to be faith-filled. It's meant to build trust in us. It's not, it's not bad to, to save money. It's, it's wise. It's wise to work with the future in mind. But let's ask ourselves, ultimately, is our security in our own efforts, ultimately, in external circumstances, in the wealth that we can build, or is our security in Christ and in his provision? Do we trust him to take care of us? At Prayer Chapel recently on Tuesday, Um, We asked those of you who were there, what is the daily bread that God blesses you with? What's the daily bread that God blesses you with? And you came up with a bunch of answers, and I just want to share some of these with you. So here's what you said. What's the daily bread that God blesses you with? Family, peace, nature, safety, freedom, animals, joy, a roof over our heads, fun, hope, God's word, the UNW community, cats, support from others, God's love and everyone else's, music, worship music, sleep, little reminders of goodness every day, little breaks throughout the day, strength, croissants, (laughs) fellowship, the breath of life, Time spent with God each day, brains and minds, indoor plumbing, spaces for connection, school, chapel, his presence, ability to pray, health, energy, purpose, light from the sun, oxygen, clean water, divine intervention, his promise, his faithfulness quite a list, isn't it? So our food is more than we eat. We know that. It's it's what God provides for us to take care of us and to build our dependence on him as we surrender, as we surrender in faith. Give us today the food that we need. Then forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So the second thing Jesus instructs his believers to pray for is forgiveness. Forgiveness. He's also declaring here the necessity for us to forgive other people. Jesus knows we need right relationships, both with him and also with others. So he knows that sin has pulled us apart. Jesus declares the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but until the kingdom comes in fullness, we will need to relentlessly practice the giving and the receiving of forgiveness. But our world doesn't operate this way, does it? Our world doesn't operate this way. We've seen it play out throughout history. We we read about it in the news every day. The world's way isn't to seek forgiveness. The world's way is to seek revenge. And this hunger for revenge, it plays out in in small everyday ways as well as large big ways too. One example of a small way. I see this every day actually with my kids. Our kids are ages 15 down to 2 and it looks different depending on developmental stage, right, but, but the other day, one of my sons took the toy rocket ship away from one of my other sons, and quickly the interaction devolved into shoving and shouting, and we went from here to here in like one second. In other words, all hell broke loose. And I realize that that can be a hyperbolic thing to say, but I don't mean it as a pun or a figure of speech, because although it's common and it's everyday, my boy's reaction in this fight was a result of the enemy and his work in this world and this same desire for revenge it's played out over and over and over again on the world's stage as we we study it in history class we read about it on twitter part of the redemptive work of jesus is that this cosmic cycle of revenge stops We see it vividly in the life of Jesus, both in what he said and what he did. We see it notably in the death of Jesus. He died in our place. I like how Tim Mackey, the creator of the Bible Project, says it. He says, A part of what Jesus sees so utterly wrong with humanity is is that we keep asserting our right to get even. And so one wrong is responded to by creating another wrong, and it's just this downward spiral. And so on the cross, Jesus declares that the spiral stops. And as humanity's representative, he takes the hit. He absorbs all the consequences of human sin and broken relationships into himself, and he doesn't get even, and he forgives. And so the Lord's Prayer becomes a tool for us, where we can learn and practice the art of dying to self every day by the power of the Holy Spirit who's working all of this in us. He forgives us and that should flow out of our lives and into the world. Now, note that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Important distinction there. Reconciliation requires two parties, it's the restoration of a relationship where uh, two parties are engaged in the relational work required. Sometimes, though, a restored relationship isn't possible, or maybe it's not safe, or maybe it's not desired by both parties. But as far as it depends on us, as far as it depends on you, forgiveness is a mandate. Now, that's not to say it's easy. Jesus knows that it's not And maybe forgiveness takes time and maybe it's something that you work toward and that's okay because that's why it's here in the Lord's Prayer. That's why he wants us to pray this every day as a reminder for us of the importance of forgiveness in the kingdom life together. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And then, don't let us yield to temptation but rescue us from the evil one. Now, maybe it's not surprising that the third thing that Jesus shows us we should ask for is is rescue, protection, deliverance from the evil in this world. I mean, every day, evil is is all around us. It's apparent. It's everywhere. We see it in the news. It's on a global scale. We We experience it interpersonally through fractured relationships, through injustice. And if we're honest, we see it in ourselves, don't we? We see it evil in ourselves the thoughts in our head, the desires of our heart, the way we act when no one's looking. Evil lurks in those places, in us. And yes, we should should pray about this. We should seek God for this kind of rescue that he offers. But I want us to keep this passage in context, and I want us to ask ourselves, what is Jesus specifically saying here about rescue? Remember, to whom Jesus is talking and what's What are the circumstances around this? This is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is is preaching to this whole crowd of people, and he's talking about how the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking into this world, and he's offering his hearers the opportunity to be a part of it all. So here Jesus is inviting participation in the coming kingdom. He invites us to honor and acknowledge his rule and his reign In the world, I think Jesus specifically is saying here if you let this kingdom prayer inspire kingdom movement through you, you should expect opposition. I'll say it again if you let this kingdom prayer inspire kingdom movement through you, you should expect opposition. You're a part of setting the world back the way it's supposed to be and the world you're helping usher in, it feels like an upside-down world to a lot of people. Isn't that right? They don't like it. They don't like it. And it's it's why the Pharisees rejected Jesus. It's why Judas betrayed him. It's why the apostles deserted him. It's why the Romans killed him, and it's why the church around the world has been persecuted for centuries. Expect opposition from the enemy. Let's pray that we wouldn't yield to temptation. Now, why temptation? Wouldn't it just be okay just to say, okay, don't be evil? <laughs> There's a special note about temptation. Why? Well, we know who's tempting us and we know what's at stake, right? If you need a reminder, let's look at times where Jesus himself was tempted. Now, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tested in every way just as we are, but, but there are two times that I'll highlight that really illustrate what's at stake here. Jesus was tempted in the desert, right, after his baptism, and he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both times, Satan was testing Jesus' allegiance, allegiance to the Father. And in his temptation, Jesus had a choice. He had a choice to do things according to the world's way or to do things according to the kingdom's way. The world's way with aggression and with the wielding of power over enemies, the displaying of his divine authority to crush earthly opposition. That's the world's way. But he chose the kingdom's way. He chose nonviolence. He chose love. He chose meekness. He chose self-sacrifice, making himself humble, taking on the very nature of a servant, right? As we read in Philippians So our capacity to be used by God as a tool in his kingdom work, it depends on our resistance to this temptation to do things the world's way. So Jesus teaches us to pray. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Now today I want to give us um, some time to reflect. Um, Reflect on the words of this prayer, this gift, this treasure, because that's what it is. I want us us to draw into the words of the Lord's Prayer, and I want to ask you today to, to discover which of these six prayer movements, highlighted by the boxes on the screen, which of these six prayer movements most represent where you're at, most speak to you where you're at today. So as you acknowledge God's presence here with us, in the room with you and in your heart, What's he saying to you? Which of these words is he maybe giving to you today to pay close attention to? Is it his name, keeping God's reputation and persona holy, revered, special in your life? Is it his kingdom, asking God to to bring his kingdom realities to bear more deeply in you and through you? Is it his will, asking God to align your will with his, surrendering your agenda and embracing his agenda. Is it food? Is it bread? Is it provision? Are you feeling called to pay attention to your need for your father's daily provision today? Is it forgiveness? Is there a relationship with with somebody in your life, somebody you share life with, or maybe it's Jesus himself? where you're feeling led to move toward giving or receiving forgiveness? Or is it rescue? Are you feeling lost or or burnt out, weary or anxious? Are you fearful? Are you face to face with, with the evil in this world? And I would invite you in these next couple minutes before we sing one final song this morning that if you feel you've identified which of these prayer movements are for you to pay particular attention to today when you're ready to simply acknowledge it before the Lord I'd invite you to respond even in a bodily way to simply stand up where you are as a way of declaring it to God as a way of responding and saying God I hear you so again, sit, pray, reflect for a couple minutes. Ask God which of these prayer movements or words is, is for you today. And then two, when, when you've discerned which God might be moving you to pay attention to or, or when you decide which one is most important for you right now, I would just invite you to stand up then at that point. Stand up where you are. And I'll come back and, and close us in a word of prayer. God, thank you for the gift. Thank you for the gift of your presence in our lives. Thanks for teaching us how to pray. Thanks for giving us uh, this beautiful poem. God, as a glimpse of of how your kingdom works and how we can interact and, and be in it. You're so good to us, God. And so we respond... And we sing. We worship you, God. Amen.